Please remain standing, and we're going to be doing a, a long reading this morning, so if you're able to stand, great, please do. If you're not, uh, we understand. We're going to read all of chapter 11 of the book of Romans this morning as we uh, get started in a new chapter. Uh, we want to have a good idea of what it says, so we'll read through this all together uh, this morning. So let us give heed to this as God speaks to us through his word this morning. Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off what is by for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given, him, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray for this time that we have in it. We ask that your spirit might uh, truly speak uh, to us this morning through your word, through the one who preaches it, Father, and may he illumine our hearts who hear it, that we may understand these words this morning, words that can be difficult. Uh, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Quite a mouthful there in this chapter, or a mindful in this chapter, some difficult things we will be looking at as we go through chapter 11, some things that we don't usually think about, and and, um, we pray, as I did, that this will be of profit to us as we understand more about God's working and His will in this world. This is the last of these three chapters, chapters 9 through 11 in which the Apostle is considering the question of the Jewish people and their status under the gospel, evaluating their wholesale rejection of that gospel and of Jesus Christ, whom it preaches. Paul began back at the opening of chapter 9 and then reiterated in chapter, the opening of chapter 10 his heartfelt grief, his unceasing anguish, he said, at the the fact that this is the case, that the Jews have rejected the gospel. And his prayer, chapter 10, verse 1, says, is that they may be saved. His concern is that his people, the Israelites, the Jews, throughout their history as the people of God and to the time when he was living and writing, though they have received so many blessings... Blessings that he even laid out in the opening verses of chapter 9. He said, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Despite all of those blessings, despite being the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jews have rejected the hope of their very redemption by rejecting the Messiah, by rejecting Jesus Christ when he came, by rejecting the good news of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And even more of a concern for Paul is that his readers should know, which which would include a large number of Jews as he writes here to the church in Rome, uh, that they would know that this situation because of the fact or despite the fact that it has come about, that it has not come about because of a failure on God's part. Back in chapter 9, verse 6, 
He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God is not to be charged with this situation. Along the way, here in chapters 9 and 10 and now coming up to chapter 11, we have learned of three categories of people that are under consideration here. First of all, there is Israel. Uh, That is national Israel, the people of Israel, the ethnic Israel, the Jews as a whole. Then secondly, of course, he has discussed the Gentiles, which, as we know, includes everyone who is not part of that first group. Everyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. And so that's the second group. The third group that Paul introduced in verse 27 of chapter 9 is that which is known as the remnant. Uh, A well-understood and and well-used concept from the Old Testament that describes that subset of the people of Israel, that Israel within Israel, that God has preserved for himself, whom, despite the rejection of God's grace by Israel as a whole, that he has determined to save, to preserve, uh, to save by grace through the merit of Jesus Christ, received by faith alone. And as we get started here in chapter 11, let me take just a moment to to reiterate and refresh your memory on some of the things that that Paul has brought forward as we've gone through these chapters. Because in examining this issue of Israel's rejection, Paul has made several points, as we've seen. First is that salvation is not and was never promised to every member of the nation of Israel, but to those whom God in his sovereign decree had chosen to save through Christ. Secondly, that God is free to do that, that he has the the power, particularly he has the authority and has in history demonstrated that that he has that authority to show mercy to some of the mass of fallen humanity and to leave others unsaved, to leave others in their sin, to let them go their own way and in doing so to harden them in their sinful rejection of him. And that he does that both among Jews and Gentiles. Another thing that Paul has noted is that despite the zeal of the Jews for for obtaining a righteousness, for obtaining a a right standing with God, that they failed in that. And they failed in it because, Paul says, that they were pursuing that righteousness or the law that would lead to righteousness, not through faith, but as if it were based on works, he says, which it most certainly is not. And so they failed to attain that righteousness. They faltered when it came to Christ and salvation through faith in Him. They, Paul says, stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over the foundation stone. And so it, He, became a stone of stumbling for them by their own doing. We have seen also that the Gentiles, on the other hand, in larger and larger numbers, had been brought into the kingdom of God, that they had attained that righteousness that the Jews hadn't attained. Why? Because they came to it by faith, by faith in Christ. Chapter 9, verse 30 
says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. We've also learned that for both Jews and Gentiles, that salvation comes to those who realize that that salvation comes to all who simply trust in Jesus Christ. That word of salvation, Paul said, is near to any who will believe. Chapter 10, verse 13, gave us that wonderful news that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew or Gentile. We have learned of the necessity then of preaching that message, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, to bring the saving word of Jesus to all so that they can hear and they can believe and they can then call upon Christ and be saved. And Paul said that that's been done, particularly understanding it or, or, or speaking of it in relation to the Jews. He says that, that message gone, has gone out in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it has gone out. And the problem of the Jews is not that they didn't have the message preached to them. The problem is not that they didn't hear the message or that they didn't understand the message. The problem was, even as it is for millions today, that they did not believe the message. They did not believe in Christ. Many of the Gentiles did, he says. And both reactions, he noted, remember, are predicted in the Old Testament. That God would be found by those who did not seek him. Speaking of the Gentiles. But Isaiah reminds us, and Paul reminds us of Isaiah's reminding us, That God said, all day long, though, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. And that brings us right up to the end of chapter 10. In fact, that, that verse that I just quoted is right there at the end of verse 21 of chapter 10. And as Paul writes that, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Paul, now likely prompted by that last statement, that evaluation of Israel as disobedient to the Word, disobedient to God, and contrary or defiant, resistant. With that freshly off of his pen, Paul now returns to the question that he began began way back in chapter 9. What about God and Israel? What about God's rejection of Israel? How do we deal with that? We've read a lot in these chapters about Israel's rejection of God and their rejection of the gospel. Now in these verses, Paul is going to answer the question of God's rejection of Israel. And in chapter 11, Paul is going to address that in regard to the past and the present, and then in the later part of the chapter, in regard to the future. And this chapter breaks down into basically two thoughts that the Apostle gives, two sections reflecting two answers that Paul is giving here in chapter 11 to that question. We're going to look at the first of them today. We'll look at the second one next week. The first answer is that God's rejection of Israel is not total, that it is not complete. And the second is that God's rejection of Israel is not final. 
This morning, as I say, we're going to look at the first of those. Paul's teaching that God's rejection of Israel is not total. And that's verses 1 through 10. That's our text for this morning. And as Paul's method is so often, and we've seen this through at least from chapter 6 on through chapter 10, his method in so much of this book, Paul begins with a question. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? They've rejected him. That's very clear. At least the majority of them have. But has he then rejected them totally? Has he completely set them aside? Is he done with them? Now, we know for those in the church today who follow a dispensational scheme of understanding the Bible and of the end times and of the relationship between Israel and the church and the dealing of God with with both, we know that for them, if you're familiar with that, that their answer to that question, has God rejected his people, uh, it is a partial yes, but a resounding no. But it comes in, in, a, that's in that system, that answer comes in a way that is, um, well, we have to just say it, very unbiblical and with unbiblical conclusions from that. But what does Paul say? In the Greek version of verse 1 here, the wording of the question itself expects a negative answer. It's as if he said, God has not rejected his people, has he? And then, in case there's any doubt, Paul makes it explicit and very clear by bringing back a phrase that we've seen so often before in these these chapters. By no means, no way. If he was writing this today in a text or an email, he'd put it in all caps with two or three exclamation points. Although I trust that Paul would not put two or three exclamation points in in an answer. It's that strong of an answer, though, this phrase that he, he uses. Yes, God's people have rejected him, but he has not totally rejected them. That's Paul's statement. In fact, we'll see that that's the statement of this whole chapter. But here in verses 1 through 10, Paul begins by bringing some proof of that. That he has not totally disregarded his people. And the proof that Paul gives begins with himself. Exhibit A, Paul says, is me. He says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's proof that God has not rejected his people completely. I am a Jew, and I haven't been rejected. And based on what Paul has written elsewhere in the New Testament, he might have added here that if any Jew was worthy of being totally rejected, Paul was the guy. Elsewhere, he says in more than one place that he is not worthy to be a Christian, not worthy to be an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says that I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent of God's church, of Christ's church, of the kingdom. 
But here, he just focuses on the fact that he's a Jew. An Israelite, he says. Saved by grace. Back in chapter 9, as he started all of this out, he pointed out that not all who are descended from Abraham are truly, spiritually Abraham's offspring. And here Paul says, and I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I may fall under that same thing. In chapter 9, he also spoke of Jacob and of God's election according to grace. And here he says, I myself am an Israelite. I am a child of Israel or a child of Jacob. And he adds here, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that remained faithful to David, one of the few tribes where people could actually trace their lineage back to that tribe. So he says, I'm I'm not discounted. I am not cast off. Paul bringing himself forward as an initial exhibit as proof that God has not abandoned his people completely. And we could think through the the Gospels and the book of Acts and the New Testament of, of other Jewish believers that likewise would serve as proof along these same lines. We could think of Peter and James and John and Matthew of, of Barnabas and Stephen of Philip and, and many others. So Paul himself, as well as these others, are living proof, as Paul writes, that God has not totally rejected his people. Well, next then, Paul shows that this has always been the case, that, that from the Old Testament times, that God has always preserved an Israel within Israel, and he has shown to them grace, even when that fact was contrary to the way things appeared. Paul begins verse 2 here by restating the question of verse 1, or rather the answer to the question from verse 1. In verse 1 he asked, has God rejected his people? Now in verse 2 he says, God has not rejected his people. And, and in this answer, the way it's worded, there are echoes of passages like Psalm 94.14 and 1 Samuel 12.22. God has not rejected his people. And why has God not rejected his people? Well, Paul answers that by the addition of, of a phrase here in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. Now, this is the first of several places in chapter 11 that bring much debate among scholars. And and I'm not talking about between Reformed and dispensational scholars where there is a lot of debate anyway. We already mentioned the problems with dispensationalism. They run much deeper than disagreements about any part of this passage. But even among Reformed theologians, the interpretation of several points in this chapter are debated. This is a difficult chapter. But the question here is, (laughs) this will give you part of the reason that sometimes people think that Reformed people are kind of nitpicky. Uh, Because the question here is, should there be a comma before that last phrase, whom he foreknew? It's because it changes the meaning. Is Paul saying here that God has not rejected his people, that is, the remnant 
from among the Israelites that God has chosen for salvation? Or is the phrase, whom he foreknew, just a description of the nation of Israel as a nation and a reference then to the cause for which God has not rejected his people as a national people? So is it God has not rejected the people of the nation of Israel, you know, the, the, the foreknown people, or is it God has not rejected the elect within the nation of Israel? If he were speaking of the elect within Israel, so if, if he were treating this without the comma, uh, let's see, uh, God has not rejected his people whom, whom he foreknew, uh, if he was saying that, then it seems that Paul is stating the obvious, because he'd be saying that God will not reject those whom he chooses to save. I mean, that's true, but hardly necessary for him to say here. What is, what is at question in these verses, according to Paul, is what is God's attitude towards the nation of Israel? That's the whole question that Paul began chapter 9 with. Has God cast them totally, completely away because of their rejection of him or not? And I think that second way is the way that we should take this. Has God cast away his, the nation? Now, the idea here of him foreknowing his people, we know that phrase from, from Romans 8.29, right? But the idea of God foreknowing his people, that word foreknow, which we looked at back in our examination of chapter 8, we saw that it means more than just to know ahead of times. It means to choose ahead of time. But it doesn't necessarily mean to choose for salvation ahead of time. And it doesn't here. The idea of God foreknowing his people here does not equate to him predestinating them all to salvation. But he speaks of choosing them as his people, to whom he would give these blessings and through whom he would bless the world. Deuteronomy 7.6 says this, God speaking to, to Moses, speaking to the people. He says, For you are a people holy, remember that means set apart, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And Paul's statement here is the beginning of him answering this question and saying, no, he has not rejected those people. Totally. Again, Paul says, I'm one proof of that. And the fact that there is a remnant... And that God continues in the Old Testament and in Paul's day, and we could say in ours as well, to save many people from the Jewish nation, to save many Jews, is another proof that God is continuing to work in the Jewish people, bringing them to salvation through Christ. But Paul has one more bit of evidence to bring forward. This one from the darkest days of God's people. This is from the days of the prophet Elijah, as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab is the king. His wife is Jezebel. This is shortly in 1 Kings 19, shortly after that great episode where 
Elijah challenges the, the prophets of Baal to a contest. And you know that story. But at the end of that contest, he took the 450 prophets of Baal and had them killed, which angered Jezebel greatly. And when she learned about that from Ahab, she sent a, a messenger, a note, to Elijah that says basically that she would see him dead by the next day. And what did this mighty prophet of God, who had just been used by God in this astounding victory uh, over God's enemies, over this false god Baal, the, the vindication of the one true God, what did he do when he heard about this? Did he come to Ahab and Jezebel and, and challenge them with a message from God? Well, 1 Kings 19.3 tells us, it says, Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then the Lord comes to him, and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he responds with the, the words that Paul paraphrases here in verse 3. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. I am I'm it. I am alone. I am all that's left of your people. He wasn't saying that he was, felt he was the only prophet left. He felt he was the only worshiper of God left. His fear was that God had had let his people be extinguished and that he, Elijah, was the last. But look at verse 4. Also taken from that chapter, it says, But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. One of the classic Old Testament remnant passages there. Even in the midst of the seeming rejection of his people, God assures his prophet that he has not abandoned them. That he has not abandoned his people whom he foreknew, but that his faithfulness to his choosing them as the ones through whom he would bless the world remains intact. And he assures Elijah that he will preserve and that he has preserved a remnant from his people. 7,000 that, notice he says, I have kept for myself. That's great. It shows, it shows who is responsible for the, the maintaining of this people. God is at work. God is preserving. God is sustaining. God is doing this. And so Paul, pointing at this, pointing to the Old Testament here, says at that time when his prophet thought that all was lost, that God proves that he had not then rejected his people, but was preserving them and preserving for himself out of them a, a faithful seed, a remnant. And now Paul, in verse 5, applies that truth to his time. That after the coming of Christ and after the point where Israel had been turned aside largely and the Gentiles were now being brought to Christ through the gospel, he says, so too 
Uh, Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's not just Paul. It's not just those others that we might have mentioned. But Paul says that even now as he was writing that God has those among the Jews, among his people of that day, that he has, as it were, 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Caesar. And as God reminded Elijah that the remnant was God's doing, Paul does that here by reminding us all that the remnant is, he says, chosen by grace, the end of verse 5. We saw that back in chapter 9, that God's election is according to God's sovereign choice, that it was his initiative, it is his action, it is his doing. And Paul assures his readers here that just as in the Old Testament, so during this time that God has not fully rejected his people Israel. But he continues to preserve them. And he continues to preserve people out of them for himself, for his kingdom. And that he does so by grace. And even as he mentions by grace, it's like Paul can't say the word grace without having to go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail about it. And he does so here. He takes the opportunity to remind us that anyone, we, they, anyone who has chosen to receive the wonderful gift of salvation is chosen by grace, receives it by grace. In verse 6, he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If someone works for something, we learn back in Romans 4, then they have earned it, that it is their due. But if something is received by grace, Paul is saying here, just as he said back in chapter 4, that by definition it is not earned. Because what is given by grace is given freely. And if there is anything axiomatic about our salvation, if there is one base level truth about our inclusion in the people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, it is this, that it is by God's free grace. Paul has made a point here to show that lineage, history, works, nothing puts God in a position where he has to save anyone. The basis of God's choice is his grace, is his purpose. And just to be clear, if you're looking at that text and kind of reading it there in verse 5 and saying, well, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Does that mean that it used to be? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. He isn't implying that it used to be based on that, but isn't any longer. Uh, it's just the way that the, the ESV is translating the text here. And the NIV actually probably translates it a little clearer for us. It says, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. And then he goes on and says, if, if grace were based on works, then grace wouldn't be grace. They're mutually exclusive categories. So here's the positive aspect of the doctrine of the remnant chosen by grace. The existence 
of an apostle Paul. The existence of the truth of God, or the truth of God's persevering or preserving a remnant in the days of Elijah and the existence of that remnant during Paul's day. All of that Paul is saying points to the truth that God has most obviously not rejected his people wholesale. He has not rejected them totally. He has not rejected them completely. Now, then in verses 7 through 10, Paul addresses a different aspect of the implication of this remnant idea. Those, those are the people of Israel who are by God's grace elect to salvation. And that different implication is this, that the existence of a remnant, remember the remnant means the rest, it means uh, the leftover. But the very existence of a remnant, the the notion of a remnant, implies that the majority, the non-remnant, the main line of the Jews, are not included in that gracious, preserving compass of God's mercy. So now he's talking about the others as part of the nation of Israel. To use the language of Romans 9, Paul has said that the remnant receives mercy. The many other Israelites, the rest of the Israelites, are hardened in their rejection of God. See what Paul says here in verse 7. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Paul's sort of shifting gears a little bit here. Um, Again, drawing on what we've been going through for the past eight weeks, he identifies three groups, but these aren't the three groups that I mentioned at the beginning. Not because the Gentiles aren't in these three groups at all. They're not part of the picture right here. These three groups are, first of all, Israel, uh, the nation, ethnic Israel, national Israel, the nation as a whole. Verse 7 says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel considered as a whole. Paul says, it failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was that? Well, I mentioned it earlier in our review, back in chapter 9, verse 30, Paul says basically the same thing about them. He starts talking about the Gentiles there. Chapter 9, verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They, the Jews, were pursuing righteousness, and he says in verse 30 there that Israel did not succeed. That Israel, considered as a nation, did not succeed overall in reaching that law, the law that leads to righteousness. He says that they failed because they were pursuing it. They were pursuing their standing before God, not by faith, but by works. And the same thing is true here in verse 7 as he talks about it. He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Failed to attain, failed to produce that righteousness. Though they sought it, though he says back in chapter 9 that they sought it very zealously, they could not attain it on their own. 
And let me remind you this morning, whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, that you will always fail to obtain righteousness if you seek it in yourself and by your own efforts. We cannot be good enough to attain to the righteousness that God requires on our own. And Israel couldn't. And Israel didn't. So that's the first group, is Israel as a whole. The second group, verse 7 there, he says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, he says, obtained it. Now remember, Paul's talking about Israel right here. He's not talking about the Gentiles. So in this case right here, the elect here are not Gentiles, but these are the elect within the nation of Israel. And the, the elect within the nation of Israel are or is, the remnant. And they, Paul says here in verse 7, they obtained it. They obtained what the nation as a whole was seeking and not obtaining. God has his 7,000 in Israel who are kept by him to be faithful to him. Those are the elect. They obtain or they attain that grace through faith, or by grace through faith. Because that's the only way to attain that righteousness is by grace through faith. So there's Israel, the nation as a whole. There's the elect within Israel. The third group, Paul doesn't give a name to them, but he describes them as the rest who, he says, were hardened. Those who, within Israel, because of their sinful rebellion and because of God's choice to leave them in that rebellion, are passed over by God's electing and saving grace. It's important for us to recall from our, our study back in chapter 9 to recall the, the order there. When God chose to pass them over, which decision he made in eternity past before they had done anything good or evil, he was considering them as already fallen. That is, God decreed, first of all, in, in eternity past, God decreed to let all mankind fall, and then he decreed to choose to save some out of that fallen group and also chose to leave the rest in their fallen state for his own glory. He didn't create them to be condemned, but he left them to be condemned because of their own sin. Those who are hardened in their sin are not hardened against their will, but in alignment with their will, in confirmation of their will, and, and in punishment of their will. Again, we saw all this back in Romans chapter 9. If you're fuzzy on that, you can go back and watch the, the sermons again. And Paul then, to further explain this hardening and the effects of it, he again does as he does so often, he brings in scriptural support. Letting scripture support scripture, letting scripture interpret scripture. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. First in verse 8, here he, he sort of again puts together a couple of quotations, primarily from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, and then there's one phrase right here at the beginning that's drawn from Isaiah 29.10. He says this, As it is written, so this is a, a, a quote from the Old Testament, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. We'll stop there. This describes the hardening that, that Paul's talking about that God justly places upon some 
but he justly does. Remember, God is under no obligation to save or to decree to save anyone. Anyone he saves, he saves by grace, not obligation. So these that he has chosen to pass over, it says that he gave to them a spirit of stupor. This is the passage that comes from Isaiah 29. That is, it's a a spirit, a condition of spiritual dullness, of lethargy. It's like someone who's on a drug. They may be conscious, but they are not able to make correct evaluations or correct decisions. That's the idea of a a stupor. That's what they're in spiritually. He says, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Notice it's not could not even, it's would not. They do not respond to God. They do not receive the things, Paul says, of the Spirit of God because those things are spiritually discerned and these hardened hearts do not have ears to hear. These are those whom God leaves to go their own way, a way that leads to destruction, a way that leads eventually to eternal punishment. Paul describes this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3.15 when he says that for them a, a veil lays on their heart when Moses is read. They're just in a fog. They can't get it. And Jesus even speaks of this process in in regard to uh, his use of the parables. Um, In Matthew chapter 13 and verses 10 through 17, I'm not going to take time to read the whole thing this morning, but after Jesus gave the parables of the kingdom, remember the disciples come and say, why do you speak in parables? And it's not as many Christians imagine so that people can understand what he's talking about. He says to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them, to the unbelievers, it hasn't been given. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. That's what Paul's talking about back here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 8. He says this takes place down to this very day. And then he gives a second quotation in verses 9 and 10. This is from Psalm 69, a passage that has is often quoted, it's quoted nine times in the New Testament, very often attributed to, to Christ and to his, his work uh, in his life and his death in the midst of his sufferings and such. It is a psalm of David, Psalm 69 is, in which David himself cries out to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. And as part of that psalm, he prays that God would punish those who have come against him that he prays that God would punish his enemies. And Paul here applies the prayer of the psalmist particularly regarding his enemies, which is thus understood to be against the enemies of Christ, the hardened ones who reject God's grace. And he says to them in verse 9, or concerning them, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. 
a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul is taking that prayer of David and applying it to the enemies of Christ, those who reject Christ, particularly those within Israel that reject Christ. So he's talking about the non-remnant part of Israel. And he says to them, let them receive their just punishment. Give them that spirit uh, of, of stupor. Let their table, the place where we think of, of receiving uh, nourishment and, and feeling at peace around the table, he's saying let that be to them a snare and a trap. You know, as if you, you went to reach for the bread and were caught in a trap. He says, let that be their case. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And Paul's use of this is that this prayer would be answered and it is being answered in the case of those within Israel that have rejected the gospel. And so Paul says that within Israel, which has in general, in the whole, rejected Christ and his gospel, there are still those whom God chooses to save So he says it's clearly not the case that God has fully, totally rejected his people. Has God rejected his people? By no means, Paul says. And there has been and still is a remnant that God has graciously kept and redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. And there are those that he has left on their own, that he has rejected, that he has hardened. And that's the situation, Paul says, in the past and here in the present as he writes. But what about the future? What of the the Jews of the time that was future when Paul wrote this, and perhaps of the future as we read this today? What about them? If they are, are they still in the heart of God? Are they still considered God's people? What is to become of them in the future? Well, that question will be Paul's topic in the next part of the chapter that we'll begin to look at next week. But for now, let us come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. First and foremost, Lord, the thing that that jumps out to us is the gratitude that we should have in our heart that you though you would be just to do so, that you have not rejected us. We are no better than, than, than the worst of the Jewish people who rejected you. We were no nearer you. In fact, we were farther off, your word says. But you, by your grace, by your choice, You have seen fit to draw us near to you through Christ. Lord, impress that on our hearts this day. Let us be, as we leave here, supremely grateful for the fact that you have given to us a gift that we do not deserve. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. We deserve rejection. We deserve to be hardened. But you have softened our heart through the Spirit. You have replaced our heart through the Spirit and given to us a heart of flesh. You have given to us the gift of faith that we might call upon Christ and be saved. 
And we thank you for that, dear Lord. We pray that you would uh, bless us in this day. Help us, Lord, uh, to, to rejoice in the salvation that we have been given by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.